0: to episode 26. Today we'll be focusing on the origins of ISIS and we had an interview with Pulitzer Prize winner Joe B. Warwick, which is a great interview. But before we get to that, I wanted to do a little bit more background. This is the fourth episode that we sort of done on the Middle East. If you remember, we did an episode, I believe it was the 12th on the Ottoman Habsburg Wars. I guess you could qualify that as Mediterranean, but since the Middle East is right next to Mediterranean... Uh, We also did an episode on the Arab Spring, which was super interesting, which I would recommend. And finally, we did uh, one on the decision-making process that went into the Middle East. And I'm always personally been fascinated by the Middle East, one, because of its history with the different religions, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity all sort of have, you know, holy sites there and have very rich history going all the way back to ancient Rome, really. Um, and all the way through the Crusades and the Ottoman Empire, and obviously up until now with the war on terrorism. And looking at the origins of ISIS, I think most people have a lot of misconceptions about sort of the root of the organization and how it came about. And sort of what we do in the interview is we kind of get beyond those narratives and really go into sort of the origins of the group, how it came to the develop, how it sort of differed from Al Qaeda, and how it's sort of goes beyond our simple understanding of the Middle East. I think that's personally been one of our biggest problems is the fact that we don't understand the Middle East, its culture, the difference between Sunni and Shiite, the different tribal sects, all of that sort of creates these very convoluted, difficult situations that we throw ourselves in. So when looking at war in Iraq, which is sort of what Mr. Warwick bases his book off of, I think we see sort of this evolution of developing a model, as you will, to try and bring democracy to the country that, you know, hadn't really experienced it. Without further ado, we'll get into the interview. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, it's definitely one of my favorites, and it's not every day that you get to interview a Pulitzer Prize winner, so I hope you enjoy. On today's episode, we welcome on Joby Warwick. He's a national security reporter for The Washington Post covering terrorism, rogue states, and weapons proliferation. He's the author of two books, including Black Flags, The Rise of ISIS, which was awarded a 2016 Pulitzer Prize for Nonfiction, His first book, The Triple Agent, recounts the 2009 suicide attack by an Al-Qaeda informant on a CIA base at Coast Afghanistan that killed seven U.S. intelligence operatives. Before joining the Washington Post, he covered the fall of communism in Eastern Europe as a UPI correspondent and worked as a reporter at the Delaware County Daily Times, the Philadelphia Inquirer, and the News and Observer in Raleigh, North Carolina. So welcome on. Thank you. Good to be with you. And then began, what is your favorite subject of history or political science to research and talk about? Why is it your favorite? And how did you become interested in ISIS? Okay,
1: well, there's a sub theme of contemporary history that deals with the clash of ideologies as we've experienced in the last 20 years. When I was a young reporter, young man, the big clash, of course, was the, the West versus the East, communism versus capitalism. And unlike other kinds of conflicts, these are ideological struggles with both sides feeling that they were superior or had, had a superior version of reality to the other. That's fascinating to me. And there's all these parallels that I've discovered in the clash between Al-Qaeda and, and radical Islamists and Western-style democracies. And just like the Cold War fights, there's been these fundamental mistakes that we've made as Western governments, we fundamentally misunderstand our adversary. But this becomes a really fruitful area to explore for me. So the Islamic State really factors in as is the most extreme example of this virulent, uncompromising strain of, of jihadism. And to see how we've grappled with it as a society, as a government, it's endlessly fascinating and, and great story material.
0: And what are some of the challenges that you've encountered while reporting or writing in the Middle East?
1: Well, there's so many, and access, I guess, would have to be at the top of the list. Always getting access overseas, particularly trying to make uh, inroads into some of these very secretive Middle Eastern governments that don't hold a lot of news conferences. So it takes a long time to develop trust, develop sources, people who will tell you things. And also on this side too, and the ones, the agencies that deal with these issues, you know, the intelligence agencies. State Department, a lot of the work is somewhat secretive, that's highly classified. So really, the first job as a journalist is is getting to know people, getting to trust you and to know your work so they'll return your phone calls. And of course, the other big problem is security. This is increasingly a dangerous area in which to work. It was certainly the case when I got started on my Black Flags book, covering ISIS, writing about ISIS, and I had some interesting encounters with people in that world. But it's become even more dangerous. And after I finished my book, that's when things really became extremely serious for journalists, with journalists getting kidnapped and sometimes killed while trying to do their job. So that's always something in the back of my mind.
0: And to get into the origins of of ISIS, which we'll be talking about today, to begin, can you kind of explain who Abu Musab al-Zarqawi was, his upbringing and how he sort of became radicalized?
1: Right, well, Zarqawi is very different from most of the other jihadist leaders that we're familiar with, like bin Laden and Zawahiri and and sort of the leaders of Al-Qaeda. He is really the godfather of ISIS, as that's how I refer to him. And it's, he's both physically the founder, he's founded the group that became the Islamic state later on, but he's also the role model and everything about him, his his criminal background, his brutal personality becomes part of ISIS's personality. So he's someone that came from a little town, not so little in Jordan called Zarqa. that's where he gets his name. And he grew up as a kind of a bad kid as a black sheep. He ended up getting in trouble with the law quite a lot. He was arrested, he had a a criminal record, was involved in drugs and, and drinking, had a tattoo. So completely different from anyone you would usually associate with an Islamist. But he becomes radicalized because first of all, he goes off to fight the Holy War. He goes to Afghanistan to become a Mujahideen and that's where he gets his taste for sort of fighting against the enemies of Islam. And he's a good fighter, he's very brave, he's fearless. He does well in battle, and he also kind of drinks the Kool-Aid over there, becomes convinced that Allah is on the side of these, this small band of, of radical Islamists who are fighting superpower and winning, because they did manage to beat the Soviet Union, and they believed that that showed they were right. So that was the moment, I think, that it crystallized for Zakawi, that this was his calling, this is what he wanted to be, and he just needed a new
0: war, and that's what we helped give him. And can you kind of explain what the Millennium Plot was?
1: Well, this becomes something important in Zarqawi's personal story, but it's one that we've forgotten in this country because it happened before 9-11 and was eclipsed by that much bigger terrorist attack. But right around the turn of the century, when we're going to the year 2000, some of the jihadi groups decided to make that a moment for some really spectacular act of terrorism. And there are at least two different plots. One we were more familiar with in this country was a plot to attack LAX Airport. There's going to be this spectacular bombing and, you know, a terrorist attack with the start of the new year. That was foiled because the, the guy who was behind it was happened to be caught at the Canadian border as he was coming across into the United States. The other one that was even bigger and at least in terms of his ambition was in the Middle East. There's a group of people in Zarqawi who's on the fringe of this group that wanted to attack a bunch of Western hotels at, again, at the turn of the millennium when people would be partying and celebrating. So they wanted to target these Western hotels, resort hotels, and carry out violence and mayhem. And that ended up being crushed as well. But this was one of the sort of the trial runs for what Al-Qaeda and, and Zarqawi both tried to do later on in their careers.
0: And obviously, you mentioned sort of the interactions between Zarqawi and Bin Laden. How did they sort of end up together, and did they sort of differ in their ideologies towards Islam?
1: You'd think they'd be very much alike, but they were quite different, and it was a personality difference more than anything else. Because Bin Laden was, as we know, you know, very disciplined. He was educated. He was an engineer. He was very much a controller. He controlled his organization very carefully. He didn't let just anybody join. There were rules, there were ideologies that you had to agree with. Zarqawi was completely different. He was a thug. He was a high school dropout. He didn't even finish high school. He was undisciplined. So when he comes across to Zarqawi's camp in 1999 and says, You know, I want to be part of your movement, Zar- uh, bin Laden looks at him and says, No thanks. You're too crazy for us. So they kind of went their separate ways. Zarqawi goes out to the western part of Afghanistan and starts his own training camp for his followers. But they essentially separated then, and he wasn't formerly part of al-Qaeda, at least at that time.
0: And when did U.S. intelligence sort of begin to pick up on al-Zarqawi and sort of the threat posed by his group and by al-Qaeda in general?
1: This is a period when the two leaders diverge It's when the Americans really start picking up on Zarqawi in particular. Al-Qaeda had been a big concern for several years. They'd blown up embassies in Africa. There was, of course, then the 9-11 attacks happened, and, and this is the most important terrorist group in the world. But Zarqawi was seen as a dangerous element all to himself. And when he left Afghanistan after the invasion, after our forces came in and toppled the Taliban government. He runs off into northern Iraq, this area that's kind of a no-man's land. It's beyond the no-fly zone, so there are no Iraqi troops up there to speak of. And he starts his own little base, and he begins to reach out to potential allies in the Middle East and in Europe, and he's starting to make plans for terrorist attacks. And so, we become very concerned about the potential of this particularly virulent, very brutal, very extreme vision of Islamism that Zarqawi is starting to develop in that period.
0: And was there a belief in sort of the U.S. intelligence community that these groups, Zarqawis and Bin Laden's, were completely separate? Or did most people sort of assume that these two were tied together?
1: Yeah, we did assume that they were tied together. And this becomes a problem for the American point of view. And I go into this somewhat in my book, we not only conflate these two organizations, which are quite different and have their own agendas, but we also make this leap of faith that these terrorist groups are also in league with Saddam Hussein, the Iraqi government, which turned out not to be true at all. They had no formal ties, certainly. The jihadists didn't like Saddam Hussein and vice versa. He looked at them as enemies of his regime, so he's trying to, constantly trying to capture and kill them. But We didn't really understand these groups very well, and so part of the rationale for invading Iraq in 2003 was because of this fear that Al-Qaeda and Saddam Hussein were working together and would come up with some united plot or united threat against the United States. Turned out that really didn't exist at all, but that uh, didn't stop us from evading Iraq in two thousand three.
0: And did the assassination of Lawrence Foley prompt the sort of the CIA and the rest of the intelligence community to take a more active role in investigating Al Sarchawey? And what impact did this assassination have in the White House?
1: So this was a very important moment in Sarkawe's life, and also in our in the United States and its ambition to try to catch him. There was a diplomat in Jordan, working at the embassy in Jordan, named Lawrence Foley, ambassador. He was kind of a mid level manager running aid programs for the Jordanians. And Zarkawi's people see him as an easy target. They're looking for, you know, to make waves to show that they can go after Americans. And they happen to find this guy. And he he doesn't have a lot of personal security and they develop this plan to kill him. So they just ambush him outside his house one day and kill him in cold blood. And, And this is something that Zarkawi planned and organized, and it really helps put him on the screen, on the radar screen of the Americans, because there aren't a lot of assassinations of this kind in the world, believe it or not. There aren't a lot of U.S. diplomats who are killed on the job. And so when he was, and when Zarkawi is fingered as someone who organized that assassination, Zarkawi really moves up the list of priorities to somebody we want to get.
0: And to get into the invasion of Iraq, which played an important role, was there this broader belief that Iraq was harboring al-Qaeda? And did this sort of reinforce the Bush administration's resolve to invade the country?
1: Exactly. Because there were really two rationales that were outlined to the American people and to the world of why we needed to invade Iraq. One was this WMD problem. We know how that went. This belief that Iraq had a secret WD programs, and it was a matter of time before they had nuclear bombs, so we had to invade to stop them. But the other was really this fear that Saddam Hussein plus al-Qaeda plus Sarkawi, would be much more dangerous than any one of them alone. And I could very vividly remember the, the speech that Colin Powell, the Secretary of State, gave at the time. This is recounted in the book as well, where he puts Zarqawi's picture on the big screen at the UN Security Council and basically says, this is the poster child for this connection between Saddam Hussein and Al-Qaeda. This is why we have to go in and get Saddam Hussein because he's working with guys like Zarqawi. It's going to become much more dangerous to us as Americans. And it turns out that there was no real connection and it was bad intelligence. It was a lot of jumping to conclusions. But for this reason, Zarqawi does become part of the rationale for invading Iraq. And interestingly, and kind of ironically, once we did invade, Zarqawi takes advantage of it. And he takes advantage of this moment in which he can go after superpower, as he'd always imagined in his mind that he would sometime do.
0: And wasn't there an opportunity to sort of kill Zarqawi before the invasion of Iraq? There's another of the
1: great... Ironies of the story, but yeah, so we had him in our sights. We knew where he was because we were watching this training camp he had in northern Iraq very closely. We had CIA people on the ground keeping tabs on it so they knew exactly where he was. And the CIA proposed a strike to try to to eliminate Zarqawi before the invasion. And it was taken up to the very highest levels of the Pentagon and was turned down. And the reason was was a fear that if we went after Zarqawi, we would somehow interfere with our own invasion plans for the big invasion of Iraq. So it was decided to, well, let's wait, we'll do the invasion first, and then we'll go after Zarqawi and his people. But by the time after the invasion took place and they were ready to go after Zarqawi, Zarqawi had long cleared out and was gone. So they they missed their opportunity to get him.
0: And did the chaos in Iraq and the aftermath of the invasion give Zarqawi and his group room to create a broader strategy for fighting the Americans? And what was this strategy?
1: It was a perfect opportunity, really, for Sarqawi because he wanted to fight a superpower and he was prepared. And the chaos after the invasion of Iraq, when you have dismantling of the armed forces, the army, the Iraqi army is sent home, the police establishment is being broken up, the intelligence apparatus, all the things that helped Iraq run as a country, those are all either dismantled or in chaos. And this was exactly the environment that someone like Zarqawi was able to exploit and try to find a way to develop a base and to become very strong very quickly. And that's what eventually happened.
0: And how was Zarqawi able to build such an extensive network so rapidly? So he did
1: a couple of really smart things. One is he tapped into this great professional network, which was available to him, which is all these Iraqis who were now unemployed. And you have former Iraqi soldiers who no longer were getting pensions. You have Ba'athist party leaders and generals and colonels who didn't have jobs anymore. And they were beginning to look for ways to fight back against the Americans, but they were disorganized. Here comes Zarqawi with all these grand ideas. He has explosives. He's got money. He's got connections. And he's becomes this kind of mobilizing point for all these hostile elements that wanted to go after the Americans that weren't quite ready or didn't really have a plan. So he becomes this unifying factor. And his organization, which later becomes known as, as Al-Qaeda in Iraq, becomes the most important single terrorist group on the Sunni Shiites, the Sunni Muslim side. And the other thing he did, which is pretty smart, was to try to really caused friction between Iraqi Sunnis and Iraqi Shiites, these two sort of sects of Islam. And he deliberately tried to set off a civil war between the two groups. And he managed to do that pretty well. And that, again, creates more chaos. It puts the Americans into this inter-tribal war between Sunnis and Shiites, and it just is essentially a perfect storm as far as having everything go wrong for us at the same time.
0: And in turn, how did the United States counter Zarqawi's organization, and what sort of strategies were developed to try and destroy his organization?
1: Well, we were not very good in the beginning, to be frank. We made a lot of mistakes in terms of destroying the infrastructure within Iraq that could have contained or could have controlled this group by alienating lots of Iraqis who might have been on our side and might have been helpful to us, but pushing them away, you know, booting them out of jobs, you know, banning them from working in government. So we made those mistakes early on. Eventually, we did get better at going after him and his network. And the the key really was intelligence. We ended up improving our surveillance capability, putting more drones and aircraft in the air, and then exploiting the intelligence. There was a general who became the chief of special forces at the time named Stanley McChrystal, later became quite famous. But at the time, he was the guy who figured out how to get inside Sarkozy's upper echelon, how to go after his lieutenants and his, his senior commanders. And the key was exploiting intelligence very quickly. If you find out where a safe house is, you go blast down the door, take out the bad guys gather up the intelligence from inside that house. And then that very same day, you go after the next one, taking advantage of the intelligence you've gathered. It was that kind of operation day after day after day that began to whittle away at at the organization and, and eventually just decimated it.
0: And to sort of build off that intelligence, what role did the country of Jordan play in contributing to intelligence gathering and tracking different elements of Zarqawi's organization?
1: So Jordan becomes a key player all really from the very beginning with Zarqawi because this is his home country. The the Jordanians know him very well. And they have a really good close relationship with the Americans. The CIA and and the Jordanians work together very closely closely on lots of different operations. And once the war starts in Iraq, Jordan doesn't support the invasion of Iraq. The King of Jordan pushes back, argues against it. But once it happens, once again, the Jordanian intelligence agencies become very useful, very helpful for us in understanding some of these Sunni networks and how they run and where they're located. And they ended up giving us information that eventually helped lead to the killing of Zarqawi in 2006.
0: And in general, how did leaders in the religion of Islam see Zarqawi and his organization?
1: So it was very mixed. You get, in the beginning in particular, people like bin Laden and his number two, Zawahiri, really not liking Zarqawi very much and seeing him as a bad figure because he was doing all these extremely brutal things. He was doing videotape beheadings, killing innocent women and children, including Muslims, bombing public places like marketplaces and schools and acting in such a brutal way that they saw him as bad for the brand. And so they kept trying to encourage him to stop, to change tactics, and Zarqawi would never listen to anyone. But eventually, Zarqawi becomes so successful, they really felt they had no choice but to try to unite with him. And so in 2004, Zarqawi becomes the first Al-Qaeda franchise. Bin Laden reaches out to him and says, yeah, you can be part of our gang. You have your own separate identity, you're Al Qaeda in Iraq, we'll work together with you on certain things. But even Bin Laden, as horrified as he was by some of the things Zarqawi was doing, felt that it was essential to have someone like him on their side, on their team, and helping energize their base.
0: And how did Zarqawi go about sort of recruiting different people, whether they were soldiers or suicide bombers, and how important was his sort of use of internet in these different tactics?
1: This is an area where Zarqawi became fairly sophisticated, almost in a surprising way, because as we've discussed, he was a high school dropout. He wasn't technically very sophisticated. And yet he had an instinctive sense that this new phenomenon, which was broadband at the time, you know, getting images and getting propaganda into people's houses around the world in real time, that was a very important tool. And so he began to kind of create messages for the internet age. And ISIS becomes much better at it later on. But he, you know, one of the first Big moments for him online was a beheading of an American. They kept, they kidnapped this uh, Philadelphia guy named Nicholas Berg, put him in an orange jumpsuit, and Zarkawi himself commits the murder, kills the man with his own hand. And then that internet image, that video, becomes the calling card for Zarkawi, and it goes out around the world so millions of people see it. And we're revolted by it back home. It's It's terrible to watch. But for these young radicals around the world in places like Iraq and in some of the other countries in the region, this is a very powerful image of this Jordanian who's very virile, who's aggressive, who looks like a ninja warrior, killing Americans and and sort of taking justice in his own hands as he saw it. And that becomes a big recruitment tool for Zarqawi in the end.
0: And ultimately, what happened to Zarqawi and most of his organization?
1: So, he becomes such a pain, such a problem for the Americans that we spend a lot of money and effort to try to find him. It took a long time. We really ramped up the campaign in 2004. It wasn't until the middle of 2006 we were able to get a break and figure out where he was and to follow some of his disciples to his hideout. And then we dropped a couple of bombs on his little safe house and killed him. Americans arrived at the very end, pulled him out of the rubble, and actually were able to see him before he died. So we knew it was him. And after that, little by little, his organization begins to fall apart. It doesn't have this charismatic leader anymore. We're getting very good at knocking out the number two leader and number three leader so it begins to disintegrate. And by 2008, there's not much left of it. It's being driven underground. It's not very capable anymore. It's demoralized. So we very nearly destroyed it by the, certainly by the end of that decade, by 2009, 2010.
0: And to kind of get into the Arab Spring, which was an important event in the region, how did the Arab Spring sort of destabilize both Iraq and the Middle East in general and allow ISIS to organize?
1: So the Arab Spring plays out very differently in many different places from Egypt, where there was a fairly quick, incredibly momentous change of government. So you end up a dictator, ends up being thrown from power in just a few weeks to the other extreme, which is Syria, perhaps Libya as well, where the result is a protracted civil war. And there's nothing that's better for these terrorist groups and particularly those like ISIS than the chaos and the ungoverned spaces that you have when you have a civil war. So you you have a country that's awash in weapons, you have people who are brutalized and radicalized by war itself, and this becomes a perfect environment for these guys to insert themselves into and and develop, you know, a, a different audience, a different following than they would have had before.
0: And did really the civil war in Syria pretty much give all the room in the world for ISIS to organize and form and prepare for what was this vision of this Islamic state in the Middle East?
1: It did. And for a number of reasons, I think the most important one, as I look back at it, is they were successful. Of all the groups, there must have been various calculations, maybe 500, 600 different militia groups in Syria, ranging from little bands of students who decided to become to join the rebel side to groups of soldiers who defected. But the ones who became most effective as fighters were the Islamists, groups like al-Nusra Front, which was a kind of an offshoot of al-Qaeda, but mostly ISIS. ISIS had the experience. It had fought before. It knew how to make weapons. It knew how to carry out attacks. And it became a, sort of a magnet just because it was doing so well. And so young Muslims in Europe and in North Africa who are looking to join the cause, looking to fight against this uh, terrible dictator in Syria, end up joining ISIS because they're the ones that, that pay money. They're the ones that are getting the job done. And so you have this incredible situation where ISIS, very much on the ropes, almost defeated in 2008, 2009, in just a very short period of time, becomes massive, has tens of thousands of followers, recruits them around the world, a real significant military operation. And that happens partly because of the Syrian conflict and this vacuum that was created that it it exploited.
0: And in addition to the Syrian civil war, do you think that the pullout of U.S. troops in Iraq allowed for the revival, allowed the remaining elements that still existed in Iraq? It
1: certainly helped as well, because that was the other aspect of this. You have an opportunity in Syria for uh, Zarqawi's gang to reinvent itself. And back home, you have a situation where the Americans are leaving. They've had a, an agreement with the Iraqis to, to withdraw by 2011, so they're on their way out just as Arab Spring is starting to happen. And it wasn't just the withdrawal of the Americans, but the fact that the Iraqi government that was left in charge was really a failure. It was highly corrupt, it was incompetent. Uh, The president at the time, Maliki, seemed to take great pleasure out of uh, persecuting the Sunnis who ran the country for decades. And so by 2011, certainly by 2012, you have many Iraqi Sunnis who are willing to join ISIS because they don't like what's happening in their country. They want to find a way to fight back against the Maliki government. So you've got civil war in one country. You've got a breakdown of authority in another. You've got ethnic rivalries, tribal rivalries going on in both places. All this allows Sarkozy's old gang to become very strong very quickly.
0: And do you think that the broader decision of the United States not to intervene in Syria also contribute to the rise of ISIS? That's is a really tough one.
1: You could certainly make the argument that if the United States had become militarily involved, early on, then we we might have been able to help overthrow Assad and who knows what would have come in after that. Nobody really can say for sure. The reality is it's almost impossible to imagine a scenario where the United States would have gotten involved in the war in Syria unless it absolutely had to. We had a and this is actually the subject of a new book that I'm going to be publishing this fall, this moment after the use of chemical weapons in 2013, when we certainly had a good excuse for getting involved militarily. But even then, all we were really contemplating were a few airstrikes. Our government did not want to get involved in Syria in any significant way. We'd just gotten ourselves out of Iraq, so it just wasn't going to happen. And if it did happen, you can also kind of let your mind play with those scenarios a little bit. We intervened fairly heavily in Libya to overthrow uh, Gaddafi. Another Arab dictator. And then as soon as he was overthrown, the country falls into civil war and essentially still, all these years later, torn between Islamists, at one in the country, a warlord on the other in the country, and it's just endless war and chaos. So whether we would have ultimately prevented a group like ISIS from coming into power, I'm not absolutely sure we could say that.
0: And how did Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi eventually ascend to sort of lead ISIS as an organization? And where did he come from?
1: So you have this figure, Baghdadi, who becomes involved in the the story soon after Zarqawi is killed. He's in this sort of middle level of al-Qaeda and Iraq managers who is liked and respected because he's a religious scholar. They need to have a sort of designated person who's the spiritual leader of the group, and that was Baghdadi, someone who wanted at one point in his life to be a professor of Islamic jurisprudence. In 2009, 2010, this group loses several of its key leaders, and Baghdadi ends up rising to the ranks, and then by 2011, he is in charge. Even though he's very different from Zarqawi in the sense that he's not a street thug. He's not some brutal killer and warrior that Zarqawi was. He's someone who brings this organization together because he has this religious and the ancestral credentials to claim to be the caliph, the leader of the caliphate. He's a descendant of of Muhammad. He's uh, a spiritual leader. And so, he becomes the glue that brings this group together, including the Syrian factions and the Iraqi factions. He's very much a unifying force. And because of his influence. It's partly why uh, this organization was able to congeal as it did in in 2013 and become not just a terrorist group or not just an insurgency, but a caliphate able to run territory, which it did for several years until it was finally defeated.
0: And how did ISIS sort of build on the tactics that were originally developed by Zarqawi in Iraq?
1: ISIS becomes a mirror, really, of Zarqawi. It does all the things that Zarqawi once did, but on a grander scale. And so you see Zarqawi doing his crude video of a man being executed, beheaded. Under Baghdadi, they do the grand spectacle. They they make a real pageantry out of it. They kidnap a Jordanian pilot. They burn him alive in a cage. They execute people, you know, dozens at a time. They throw people off of rooftops, and they videotape all of it. So, all those brutalities, all that brutality and all those atrocities that uh, happened in Zarqawi's time become amplified. The same animus that he had against Shiites, Zarqawi was, you know, hated Shiites. They're very anti-Shiite as well, and make that part of their cause. So, it really, in, in many ways, it becomes a reflection of the godfather, the man that founded the organization back in
0: the early days. And to ask some concluding questions, what countries played a role in defeating ISIS, whether it was Iran or the Iraqi army or the United States? What was the makeup of sort of this coalition that really disliked ISIS and fought against them?
1: This was a remarkable diplomatic story, I think, to begin with, because it was a true coalition of countries that defeated ISIS in the end. We can think back to the U.S. invasion of Iraq, and there was a coalition of the willing, which ended up being the United States and Britain and a few other countries contributing, few people. In the case of the fight against the Islamic State, there were more than 70 people, 70 countries rather, that signed up to help out with this. And many of them, the, sort the regional countries, were on the front lines. The Americans were doing intelligence, doing air power, helping organize and coordinate, uh, doing logistics. But it was the, the Iraqis who were sort of the frontline shock troops. It was the Kurdish Syrians who were helping us, the Jordanians and the Emiratis and others flying air sorties. So it was a true coalition in that sense. And it worked slowly because when you bring together such an unwieldy, diverse force of fighters, it takes longer. But the beauty of this effort was in the end, the local people won back their own territory. The Iraqis liberated Iraq, the Syrian Kurds liberated their part of the country, and now they're in charge of it. They're rebuilding the place themselves. It's not some foreign government, not United States and Western Europe that are in the country as invaders and drawing hostility because they're not really local.
0: And to get sort of more specific, what role did Iran sort of play in building this coalition and fighting against ISIS in general?
1: So they were not exactly allies in a technical sense, but they were interestingly on the same side in this fight. And you do see the Iranians looking at ISIS and seeing them as as being very much a threat to Iranians as well. And they helped organize Iraqi militias of Shiite volunteers, basically, who did a lot of the fighting inside Iraq, particularly in Western Iraq, places like Tikrit, where these Iranian-backed militias helped liberate cities that were overtaken by ISIS. I think we eventually would have seen a success without them, but the Iranians and their proxies did do a lot of damage to ISIS and did help drive them out of many Iraqi cities.
0: And do you think now that ISIS has mostly been defeated, You know, the relationship between Iran and the US will continue to sort of deteriorate? Or do you think there's common cause in the Middle East that? somehow could bring this wide coalition together again? Or do you think that it's gonna to continue to deteriorate like it has been for pretty much the last 40 years? Mm.
1: It's hard to be very positive or optimistic about uh, the, the relationship with the Iranians. And there have been missed opportunities. We certainly have been bitter enemies at, at many parts of our mutual history. But after nine eleven, after the attacks on New York and Washington, there was a brief moment where the Iranians made overtures to the Americans and suggested we could work together or help each other out. And that was turned away because we were suspicious about the Iranians and their nuclear activities and their sponsorship of Hezbollah, all good reasons, but we essentially said no thanks to the Iranians back then. And now I think that we're in a situation where where hardliners in both countries are running the show and the the Iranians, they continue to fund groups that, that cause problems for our allies around the world, including the Iraqi government. They're stronger than ever in Syria. Arguably, they've been able to create a sort of almost a surrogate uh, country for themselves in Syria, because they have such a heavy presence of militia in in place. And so they can do what they want there. So it's a very dangerous situation. And we see the two countries provoking each other deliberately with uh, activities in the Gulf and elsewhere. And I think this is heading in a very bad direction at the moment.
0: And ultimately, do you think that sort of ISIS was hiding in plain sight for many years? Do you think in general, it just took a while For them to sort of become a more recognizable group and emerge as a true threat?
1: I think it was hiding in plain sight in the sense that there was a message there that resonated with many Sunnis, some of the same grievances that ISIS later exploited to become so powerful so fast. Those are present. And so I think what was really impressive about ISIS in a Negative way, I suppose, is its ability to capitalize on those issues, those grievances, the feeling of powerlessness that many uh, young Muslims have, unable to shape their own future or to control their own destiny. You know, offended by the presence of Western troops, offended by Western culture. So all those grievances were masterfully exploited by ISIS in the end, and it didn't take very much, really, except a group that was ready to mobilize and ready to do big things. And then Baghdad got his moment in 2013.
0: And it seemed like many of the sort of current and former leaders of ISIS were detained at one point by, you know, the United States and Iraq or by U.S. allies. How were most of these people released? And do you think sort of the imprisonment of a lot of these people sort of led to radicalization? There's a common story, not just with ISIS's history, but with some of these other
1: groups like al-Qaeda, where many of the leaders had the experience of being in prison. It certainly happened with the number two leader of Al-Qaeda, Zawahiri, was imprisoned in Egypt for years, tortured, beaten, and has, still has physical scars from that time. So, Kaohi spent time in prison in Jordan in the 90s. He ended up being released almost accidentally because there was a general amnesty that was granted in 1999. He was supposed to be in prison for another decade, but he ends up getting sprung early and then goes off to Afghanistan. And you see again and again, the story of these young men who were radical already, but became more radicalized, more defiant because of the prison experience. And, you know, you can't keep people locked up forever. Guys like uh, Baghdadi end up being held by the Americans at a prison camp in Southern Iraq eventually he gets released. And a lot of his, his colleagues do too. And when they get out, often they're much more hardened, much more ideological, much more radicalized than when they went in.
0: And my final question is, it seems like most people's perceptions of ISIS is that sort of a spur of the moment organization built out of, you know, the chaos of civil war and the pullout of U.S. troops. But based off your writing and reporting, it it appears that, you know, sort of their rise was sort of years in the making and that they have a clearly long history. Can you kind of just broadly explain that sort of story, ISIS goes much longer than what people think?
1: And that's really, that's a good question because it's really the reason I wrote my book, Black Flags, because I do think that a lot of people saw in 2013, 2014, this group that came out of nowhere and suddenly was looked so powerful and so terrible and frightened people, frankly. But this group had a very long history and it had been this is a overnight success that had been years in the making, literally. And what's also important about that is realize that the story isn't over because even though we have this moment where the caliphate has been defeated... ISIS is not finished and, you know, the intelligence folks who are in the region that we talk to all the time say this constantly, that the group is rebuilding in Iraq and Syria. It's certainly making inroads in other parts of the world, including parts of Africa, South Asia, East Asia. And so it's not the end of the story and the same virulence, the same brutality is emerging in other parts of the world and will continue to do so. It becomes something that becomes, for us, almost a generational conflict that never quite goes away.
0: I hope you enjoyed that interview with Joby Warwick. I again it was really neat being able to talk to him and I think it's fascinating too, not just, you know, intelligence gathering all that, but the reporting side of things, you know, the lengths that, you know, journalists are willing to go to report and document as, you know, I read in his bio, he wrote extensively about the covert attack in Afghanistan against the Central Intelligence Agency. That's also a really good book. It's really, I think in the last decade, it's been really interesting to sort of look at the unprecedented access that I think reporters have been able to get and have been able to write about. I think it's cool that we're able to sort of, you know, talk about these stories and really go into depth. I, even in, you know, going back to 2014, when ISIS sort of rose, and most people, again, just thought this was a spur of the moment organization that sprouted out of nowhere. it really isn't true. It's really sort of goes beyond just what Al Qaeda in Iraq was. And, you know, again, the misconceptions of all of that. And again, I could do, again, an entire podcast on simply Middle Eastern history. I'm sort of hoping to go back in time and sort of examine the origin of Islam and the Islamic empires, because I always think that's sort of fascinating as well, because that had a tremendous impact on world history. But again, looking at ISIS and sort of their goals, and they're not necessarily defeated. Well, They mostly are defeated in Iraq and Syria, but they certainly still have cells in Yemen and different countries in Africa and all of that. And I always sort of wonder when you, again, when you went into Afghanistan, for example, if we sort of took a sledgehammer and sort of like smashed the nut and the nut went everywhere everywhere, and all those sort of cells went everywhere across the Middle East. And I think we've seen that sort of same thing with ISIS that, you know, the organization has sort of gone underground and, you know, whether it rises to the level it did in sort of 2014, 2015, I doubt, but. Again, you sort of never know. So again, I enjoyed sort of not just looking at ISIS, what happened in you know 2014, 2015, but going really beyond that to understand the origins, sort of the thinking behind the organization and all that. So I hope you really enjoyed it. I definitely recommend going and listening to some of our other episodes where we cover different topics in the Middle East. I definitely recommend any number of authors that are constantly coming out with new material. And writing about these different stories. Again, I would definitely recommend uh, Mr. Warwick's book, Black Flags, The Rise of ISIS. As I said, won a Pulitzer Prize winner. And he's also, you know, he still does reporting uh, for the Washington Post. So definitely recommend looking him up and following up on Twitter. He does a ton of great work. So I hope you enjoyed the interview and enjoyed this episode. If you have reached this point in the podcast, you are at the end. And thank you for listening all the way through. As always, follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on social media at History Does You on Instagram or Facebook to keep up with new episodes, giveaways, and the chance to ask questions of your own to our guests. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts and enjoy what we do, please give us a review and share it with your friends. Thanks again.